Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Charles Kurzman is a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director of the Carolina Center for the Study of the Middle East and Muslim Civilizations. Dr. Kurzman recently visited us here at ACMCU to give a book talk about the reissue of his book, The Missing Martyrs, Why Are There So Few Muslim Terrorists? We connected with Dr. Kurzman after his presentation for this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit down with us here at ACMCU. We really appreciate you uh, coming in and, and sitting down and talking with us. Um, now, you just gave a presentation here uh, at ACMCU on various topics um, dealing with the perception of, of, of you know, terrorism and extremism um, in certain areas of various countries and, and so on and so forth. As a, as, a, as a very intensive topic, how did you yourself first getting involved in studying um, the, uh, I guess I would say, the trends of, of terrorism in, in various uh, um, cultural or ethnic communities? Uh, yeah, well, obviously 9-11 had a big impact uh, on my uh, uh, interests. Uh, I'd been studying uh, Middle East and Islamic studies topics already since, since college. Uh, I'd been drawn into the study of the region by uh, the Iranian Revolution and uh, the hostage crisis, uh, which um, uh, when, when I was in high school, and and uh, was just intrigued and baffled and wanted to wanted to learn more, and uh, didn't understand. Uh, you know, wh- who are those folks who are calling uh, America the Great Satan, and uh, what is this Islam that they uh, that they they're chanting about? Uh, and how does it lead them to, to engage in these acts that seem so uh, violent and contrary to international norms? And so I started uh, in college uh, learning uh, uh, Persian and then some uh, other languages of the region and uh, uh, did my dissertation actually on the Iranian Revolution. Uh, and, and then sort of was uh, uh, blindsided, honestly, uh, by the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Uh, not, uh, you know, hadn't really thought that these Sunni revolutionary groups would really uh, amount to much, and especially not on a global scale. Uh, and so uh, along with the, the rest of the world, uh, certainly the rest of America, uh, was horrified. Uh, to see that uh, what was basically a civil war halfway around the world uh, had led to this mass murder uh, uh, here in the United States. 
and uh, had uh, uh, family members uh, nearby uh, in New York uh, who fortunately survived. Uh, was just uh, it hit very close to home. And at the, uh, you know, in uh, the shock and, and, and grief, uh, also wondered, well, well, how widespread is this? Uh, and I think as many of us were wondering, you know, are we going to be seeing 9-11s all the time now? Uh, you know, the context being, of course, the democratization of the means of violence. Like it is now, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard to engage in an act of terrorism. Uh, honestly, uh, if you really put your mind to it, you can probably go out and kill some folks. And it's a terrible thing to, to admit uh, and to say out loud. But uh, honestly, uh, it's the truth. And certainly the revolutionaries know it. And so they're trying to recruit people all the time. And I wanted to sort of track, well, you know, uh, how, how many of the world's billion-plus Muslims uh, can we expect to be engaging in this kind of violence? So a number of years went by, and as I'm tracking and realizing uh, that the numbers were not adding up to anywhere near what the worst-case scenarios uh, were uh, in the days and months after, after 9-11, uh, that we weren't seeing waves of attacks of these sorts. We weren't seeing sleeper cells that were uh, being infiltrated into the United States and other countries that were uh, bringing mass violence uh, onto the heads of, of civilians. It, it just, it, it didn't happen, fortunately. Uh, you know, and we're so lucky that it didn't. And I began to, to think, well, how can I study this systematically? How can I present this information to people? Uh, you know, uh, this is a diversion from the other things that I had studied uh, because I... Uh, had all sorts of historical projects I was interested in and uh, uh, didn't mean to get into current affairs and certainly had no great interest in studying how people kill each other. Uh, I, I still feel uncomfortable talking about the statistics and talking about these trends and so on uh, because behind each of those numbers are uh, real people's pain and loss. Uh, and, and so I at the same time, felt a responsibility to point out to folks uh, in the United States, especially, but also around the world, uh, that these revolutionary terrorist organizations uh, were not recruiting on the scale that we had been concerned that they would be. Uh, and so uh, it got into, got into this project really uh, by, because of world events. So when you found yourself um, being subject to the data that, that, that showed that there wasn't these trends that lined up with a lot of the concern and fear and uh, propaganda, so to speak, out there in, in the media and in the news, would, did, would that come in as, as a shock to you and your other colleagues that this, it's just the numbers didn't seem to add up? Well, yes and no, uh, because many of us who studied the Middle East and studied Muslim communities around the world, uh, our experience of uh, these communities was that uh, they were not particularly violent at all, uh, that they had no uh, interests in revolution, that they were uh, horrified uh, by uh, terrorism, just as everybody else was. And so we, on the one hand, didn't feel that that the numbers would be very large. 
On the other hand, 9-11 was such a surprise uh, that we wondered if we might be wrong, that maybe this is the new thing, that the new era, the new normal, is going to be violence, uh, if not by, uh, you know, millions, then at least by, you know, uh, many thousands every year, everywhere. Uh, and if you calculate it out with uh, more than a billion Muslims in the world, if one one hundredth of one percent were interested in engaging in violence, we would see violence every day, everywhere. Uh, and yet we didn't. And so that's, uh, I, I think, the statistical aspect here is that things could be so much worse uh, and that we were anticipating that they would be so much worse than they, they have turned out to be despite the uh, the actual violence that has gone on that, that I want to make sure uh, to repeat that I deplore and denounce and am and, and not trying to be apologetic for in any way uh, and yet am also want to express my relief and I think the, what should be the world's relief uh, that it's as limited as it has been. Now, one thing that's been going on in the news, not just recently, but especially since the 2016 election, is a, a rise in a sentiment of, of fear and phobia around uh, um, people who are practicing Muslims, uh, both here in the United States and, and abroad, uh, this a trend of, of Islamophobia. Um, that some say, oh, it doesn't even exist, and others say, well, no, there is, there is a concerted uh, trend out there, both in media as well as in uh, certain, uh, you know, pieces of, of journalism that come out around almost criminalizing a, a faith practice as an associated to these these ills that that some a society might say is, you know, bad. I mean. Is, is that something that you've seen statistically increasing um, towards Muslims living in the West? Um, or is that something that you think has been just kind of stewing as a as like an underlying uh, concern, fear of the quote-unquote other? It just happens that that other now is being labeled as someone who is, is Muslim in, in many cases nowadays. Yeah, there's pretty strong evidence that Islamophobia is on the rise in the United States and uh, in Europe, as well as in uh, a number of other regions around the world, including uh, South Asia and East Asia, and that this is, uh, uh, this is very worrisome. Uh, and it's not just since 2016. And that's, uh, I think, it's worth uh, putting that in context, that the uh, the, the uh, anti-Islamic sentiments that have become so widespread and now become more mainstream in certain circles in the United States and elsewhere uh, were, have been building uh, for, for some time. Uh, so according to surveys in the United States, uh, the uh, unfavorable attitudes towards Muslims started to rise around 2007, 2008. Uh, this is considerably earlier than, uh, than uh, that was before the Obama administration uh, and certainly before the Trump administration. Uh, and it's at a time, it starts to rise at a time when there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh, objective threat to the United States. So the, the, the trauma of 9-11 had begun to recede. Uh, we were not facing massive threats by al-Qaeda. Uh, the Islamic State hadn't even been formed yet. Uh, and yet, 
Americans start to become more negative, start to lose uh, a sense of resilience, and start to express more negative opinions towards Muslims. Uh, and that those figures have continued to rise, these unfavorable attitudes, uh, pretty dramatically uh, uh, since then. Uh, but it's not all Americans, and I, I, I want to uh, emphasize this, that uh, we see, uh, in fact, a, a polarization uh, in American society where uh, one segment, uh, a large segment of the United States, has seen slightly more negative uh, attitudes over the past uh, dozen years. Uh, and then another segment has gone way negative and has been uh, whipped up into basically a frenzy uh, by anti-Islamic groups, by social media campaigns, by, uh, by uh, all sorts of publicity stunts, uh, opposition to mosque building, uh, opposition to Sharia law, as though that were actually uh, going to be implemented in the United States, uh, all sorts of uh, campaigns that have pushed this base uh, into a uh, quite intolerant position. Uh, and that this is building for a number of years suggests that it's not going to turn off overnight either. Uh, and I think that's worrisome. I mean, it is, I mean, it's troubling myself as, as someone who kind of doesn't understand where this pronounced fear of, of others around us comes from. Um, now, ACMCU deals with issues related to the understanding and the relation between Muslims and Christians. Do you, have you seen any trends related to a fear of, of faith practitioners in general? Or is it, like, I, I just don't, as a, as a Christian, I don't, myself, I, I have a hard time understanding how people who are, 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 are practicing in their faith can demonize uh, someone else of, of a different faith background if if their own faith background is generally speaking very much against um, belittling criticizing or labeling other people neighbors so to speak as dangerous a priori um, unfortunately faith traditions uh, of all sorts uh, can be pretty intolerant at times uh, so, so yours uh, sounds to be one of the. It sounds like one of the deepest commitments and lessons that you draw is that uh, you know, come one, come all. Uh, that everybody has their own practices, their own faiths, uh, and that you know that that's wonderful and beautiful. But I don't think that's historically the norm within Christianity uh, um, or in other uh, faith traditions, and and. And yet, at the same time, those um, different views have battled it out over the millennia. Uh, who can we live with? Who, who are we afraid of? Which, which faiths are beyond the pale? Uh, I think those are, uh, those are really big order questions. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's hard to sort of imagine other people have different takes on this sometimes, I think, to get out of our own heads. And part of getting out of our own heads is to understand other people's uh, anxieties and fears. And uh, it, even if we may sort of bring social science to bear and explain their, their positions, like, well, they're being pressed by uh, you know, either outside events or they're being pressed by political movements and so on, uh, 
there's something there that they feel they want to hold on to. So I, I, I guess this is the, so I'm trained as a sociologist and the sociology of religion tries to take a, uh, a standpoint that says, uh, I'm not going to judge anything. Uh, I'm just going to try to see what motivates you. See, you know, what, what is this religion about for you? Uh, and it's hard sometimes when, it, when the people are very different from you in certain key ways, uh, whether they live next door to you or around the world. Uh, but that's, I, I would like to be able to, with this project, to reach folks and have them look at the data and have them talk about these trends and look at debates among Muslims about terrorism and revolution. Uh, look who's winning those debates, which is the non-revolutionaries, and uh, get people to think about, oh, yeah, well, we, we did kind of think there were going to be massive 9-11s all the time, and it, and it hasn't happened. I wonder what, what's up with that. And maybe then folks who are not Muslim would go and ask a Muslim uh, and go talk to somebody about it. So maybe even these questions, these very political questions, can lead to a human response. At least I'd like to think so. I think that's wonderful. Um, so one other thing is that you've written in the past on uh, anthologies of Islamic thought, you know, most specifically in Islamic liberalism. So could you talk a little bit about that topic and perhaps for folks in our listening audience who may not be familiar with, you know, what what is liberal Islam and where did that come from? Is it a new phenomenon or is this just something that is not really being shown in the national stage? in areas that are not predominantly Islamic. Yeah, so liberal Islam is a, a, a phrase that sort of pulls together a variety of th themes and, and threads uh, that have been uh, emerging since uh, the rise of modernity, since uh, the 19th century in Muslim-majority countries, uh, where there was an interest in, uh, in democracy, an interest in uh, tolerance, uh, an interest in science, an interest in social equality, including gender equality. Uh, and these threads uh, were extremely important in many uh, Muslim communities uh, were involved in these uh, uh, pro-democracy constitutional revolutions of the early 20th century. Uh, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, in Iran, and various other uh, um, Muslim-majority societies, and have continued up to the present day uh, to uh, the point where uh, you have a, a majority, large majorities of Muslims around the world uh, who favor uh, democracy, uh, social equality, uh, and various other liberal themes, but doing it within an Islamic discourse. So it's not just that they're saying, yeah, the West has all the answers uh, or that we want to be, you know, adopt a secular version of this. It's phrased and, and conceived within an Islamic discourse uh, so that they, you often have uh, uh, Muslim intellectuals and political leaders justifying, say, democracy uh, or gender equality uh, on the grounds of sacred verses from the Quran or hadith, uh, is reports of the practices of, the, of uh, the Prophet Muhammad and his companions, or other religious sources, or even from the absence of sacred sources on a topic and saying, well, God must have left it up to us to decide how we want to make these arrangements. Uh, all of these debates are really lively uh, and have been going on now for generations. Uh, the median 
perspective, probably in most Muslim communities, politically liberal and culturally conservative. That is pro-democracy, uh, pro-rights, uh, and at the same time culturally conservative. That is, if we are allowed to vote freely, we're going to vote for a party that expresses our cultural uh, heritage and, and some of the aspects of that can be conservative. Uh, and that combination is not unique to Muslim communities, uh, obviously among Christians in the United States and in many other places as well. You have this uh, combination of cultural conservatism and political liberalism. Uh, and I think there is a, a quite a bit of commonality in those uh, in multiple settings in different faith traditions. Even if the, the faith references may be different, that this combination of wanting to be authentically true to one's faith tradition and at the same time to have all these modern goodies, uh, you know, such as uh, abolishing slavery and things that just about everybody in the world agrees with, uh, that we can all move towards even if we justify those on different grounds. That's wonderful. Um, and I think that's one of the things that our center tries to you know, espouse and showcase is the dialogue um, that can come from peoples of different faith traditions um, who have their own very special traditions, practices, cultural uh, themes and cultural practices, but also that respect other people's cultures practices, themes, and, 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 and so on. And this idea of pluralism that we can have in a society many different viewpoints and many different people that respect others and their different viewpoints living in, in, in peace. But um, I do want to let you talk about your new reissue of, of your book, um, uh, The Missing Martyrs. Um, now, I, I believe you just came out with a, a new version of the book that's been updated did you want to talk a little bit about why the book was updated and, and um, why you felt it was important to, to go and publish a new version? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the book was originally published in 2011. And at that point, uh, it, it, it was a moment of uh, what seemed like a historic decisive moment. Uh, the Arab Spring had just occurred. You had dictators toppled in a number of areas. You had uh, democratic institutions starting to emerge. Uh, you had uh, you know, outpouring of uh, hopefulness uh, in many Muslim societies looking at these events in Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere. And uh, at the same time, it was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And so it seemed like a logical moment to look back and see how uh, Al-Qaeda and these other Islamist revolutionaries had fared over that subsequent decade and it looked pretty clearly like they were losing out. Now since then, uh, some of those uh, really hopeful locations where the uh, Arab Spring raised uh, everybody's expectations have fallen apart. And uh, in particular in Syria, where a peaceful movement against the dictatorship there uh, was brutally repressed and turned then into an armed, a series of armed revolutions, uh, one of which uh, involved this group that came to call itself the Islamic State. And then uh, this uh, organization takes a bunch of territory in Syria and Iraq and then sends offshoots around to uh, attack people elsewhere and kind of displaced uh, al-Qaeda as the main face of this Islamic revolutionary movement. 
Uh, and so th the references to al-Qaeda from 2011 no longer seemed up to date, and it, people began to wonder whether uh, the uh, conclusions that I had uh, uh, put out in 2011 no longer applied. Maybe Islamic Revolution was, in fact, gaining in popularity, that we were going to see more terrorism. Uh, and at my uh, presentations and in my classes and when I speak to community groups, people would push me and say, well, what, you know, look at this Islamic State. How can you be saying that terrorism isn't the, the major huge fear, the national security threat that we worried it would be in 2001? And so I uh, tried to undertake the same kind of systematic data gathering that I did uh, uh, for the first volume to update it and to track how the Islamic State was doing and other uh, related Islamic revolutionary organizations. And uh, fortunately uh, found that there was a limit, a ceiling on the amount of recruitment that they were able to uh, engage in, uh, that there was, as with Al-Qaeda earlier, there was huge pushback from mainstream uh, Muslim organizations, uh, from uh, pop stars and popular culture, from uh, political movements, even political movements that define themselves as Islamist, saying that this Islamic state does not represent us, that this is an aberration, that it is not truly Islamic and as they understood it. And then we saw in 2015, the uh, Islamic State's uh, recruitment efforts just drop off dramatically. And uh, since really you can pinpoint this in July 2015, uh, that the numbers start to go way down. And so uh, in preparing this new volume, have uh, considerable data that the terrorism on a global scale uh, has shrunk considerably since its peak and has uh, become more and more uh, centered now, concentrated in a handful of civil war zones. And that in the United States and uh, in most parts of the world, uh, terrorism is, is not a leading cause of death and has not been the, even the threat that we thought it would be a few years ago. So the second volume tracks uh, the Islamic State, and of course Al-Qaeda is still out there in a weakened form, just as the first volume had focused on the earlier generation of Al-Qaeda uh, militants. So why, why, what happened in 2015 that you think created such a, I'm not going to say vacuum, but such a dip in recruitment efforts of these larger uh, organizations? So uh, a, a bunch of things converged at that time. Uh, the, the easiest one to, to pinpoint is that Turkey shut off its border with Syria. So it became harder for uh, people who wanted to join the Islamic State, and they say that up to 40,000 people, foreign fighters, went to, uh, uh, to join the militants or to live in their territory uh, over the series of years that they were uh, holding uh, territory. So they, uh, Turkey... Uh, uh, had uh, allowed uh, people to travel into Syria because they were trying to support the uh, pro-democracy uh, revolution in Syria. Uh, but at, uh, in the middle of 2015, uh, ISIS starts to attack in Turkey, and they say, okay, no more. And they shut down the border, and it becomes much harder for them to get not just new recruits, but also to get material, uh, to get uh, to, to have cross-border trade and to get money and goods and so on. Uh, and so that's, that's a specific thing. But the broader trend is that ISIS, their brand, 
was to promote gory violence uh, as a way of intimidating opponents and, uh, and, and pressuring people to join them. And that, uh, they, they, it turns out that there was fortunately not a huge market for that. And that as that continued, people became more and more grossed out by the extreme violence. And so it becomes counterproductive for them. And they, uh, they actually tried to switch to a more uh, happy version of PR where they're putting out also uh, videos about how wonderful life was under the Islamic State. You know, children dancing and, uh, you know, markets full of food and so on uh, to say like, oh, we're not all just about death and killing. Uh, we also have this other side. But by then, uh, you know, their, their, their uh, brand was pretty well entrenched in most people's minds that this is a, a murderous group of revolutionaries. And most Muslims around the world, 99.999% were so grossed out by that and so offended by it uh, that they start to uh, push back uh, even more strongly, in particular uh, by uh, uh, reining in young people in their own communities who they felt uh, might be attracted to some sort of revolutionary purity. Uh, and so we start to see in community after community and country after country that they are uh, talking with their kids and trying to limit their kids' access to these horrible, troubling videos that are available online. Uh, and that's a sign also, of, I think, of how Muslims are the main bulwark against Islamic terrorism. Uh, that's a, a point that some folks forget sometimes in their overly generalizing sort of condemnations of Muslims, they're not doing enough, or that they're threats, or that they're somehow subversives, uh, that those are your allies in this fight against terrorism. Uh, it, it is not a very strategic move to be insulting your allies. Uh, and so I think what th there's been a, uh, um, uh, unfortunately, a, 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 a f some folks have forgotten that lesson, uh, you know, if we think back to right after 9-11, George W. Bush uh, went to a mosque the week after 9-11 in Washington, D.C., and made a point of having a press conference there to say, we are not fighting Islam. In fact, these Muslims here with me and around the United States and around the world are our best allies in this fight against terrorism. It's hard to imagine President Trump making such a move. Uh, and it was hard to imagine almost any of his Republican competitors for the Republican nomination making that move in 2015 and 2016, uh, that something had shifted where Muslim allies were no longer considered a strategically important thing, and so you could feel free to uh, make uh, extreme comments uh, denigrating the entire faith community. Uh, I, I think that security people are probably very worried about this. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it seems like com not only counterproductive, but you're you're almost making a situation when when you you're trying to create all this escalation for the sake of rousing people to perhaps uh, channel into their most negative base values. Now, this is the one thing I want to talk about because yes, there is international terrorism, but there's also domestic 
acts of terror. I mean, we've seen an escalation over the past number of years or decades in in acts of violence occurring within the continental U.S., for example, from people that, you know, there's not really anything that differentiates this person from anyone else for any reason. It seems like there's, it's almost a, a crisis of, uh, of anger and how, how, and where that's anger being channeled and, and why people get so angry that they have to use violence to express their, their, their innermost problems, I would say. I don't know. I'm, well, I want to make sure we're not exaggerating the scale of that, too. Just as we don't exaggerate the scale of Muslim extremism, let's not exaggerate the scale of domestic terrorism, either. That said, the number of prosecutions for domestic terrorism is much larger than the number of prosecutions for Islamic extremism, according to data from the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, uh, in, in the Department of Justice that's within the United States. Yes. Uh, I've uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request along with the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law to try to get the docket numbers for those domestic terrorism prosecutions. We have the overall numbers, but we can't look up the cases without the docket numbers. They've released the identities of uh, what they call international terrorism cases. Uh, which is predominantly Muslims who are uh, linked in some way or inspired by a foreign terrorist organization. But the domestic cases they have not released, uh, we've been turned down, and so we've filed suit uh, now uh, in uh, federal court to try to get the Department of Justice to release those docket numbers so that we can look and see, well, what are these cases? Most of them don't make the news. Of course, there's a handful that do, are horrible events of anti-Semitism and uh, uh, other forms of right-wing violence, uh, but most of them, you know, we we don't know about the, these these hundreds of cases that apparently have been prosecuted under the, the domestic terrorism category. Uh, so I, I agree that I, I would like to know more. If we're going to be talking about violent extremism, let's talk about all of violent extremism, and then again to you know the the to keep it in context to remember that, that political violence remains in the United States, thankfully, very low. So we have 16,000 murders a year, more or less. And of those, far less than 1% each year, with the exception, of course, of 9-11. You know, in recent years, very few of those murders are uh, politically motivated. Uh, so it, it's not a leading cause of death. It's not a leading threat to public safety, and yet it attracts so much of our attention and so much of our federal government apparatus is geared towards the prevention of this tiny fraction of this overall big death toll in the United States. I, again, that's thank you for saying that and thank you for going into it because I think there's a lot of folks that don't realize that statistically it's it's these great fears that are being kind of given to us as something to focus our concern over. From a statistical point of view, it doesn't seem to measure what's actually going on there in, in our communities and around the world regarding um, that which could hurt us, so to speak. Right. So I'm not saying that our attention needs to be one-to-one, -one, like, you know, that we would have a, some sort of strict ratio of, of fatalities uh, to federal dollars spent on something, but it does seem like it's disproportionate. 
that we have thousands of agents in the FBI working on counterterrorism, countering Muslim extremism, uh, but they're generating you know, a couple dozen arrests uh, a year, and most of those don't seem like they were extremely serious uh, cases. Uh, it, it seems disproportionate. Uh, and I wonder what else we could be doing, what other crimes we could be fighting or other social problems we could be solving uh, if we stood back and tried to keep things more in proportion. So um, one thing I did want to go into is social movements and how they are related to these statistics that, that you've been talking about relating to terrorism. Um, it's just in a globalized world and in a world where social media is now becoming a tool to uh, the masses for talking about what's going on. And do you think that plays into some of the statistical data you've seen regarding not only incidents of terror, but the studies on and the uh, kind of the, just the focus on terror? Yeah, sure. So the technology has changed uh, the landscape in the field of uh, violent extremism, just as it's changed the landscape in every other aspect of, of human uh, uh, organization. Uh, so we, it, it is easier now for people to connect with one another across long distances. Uh, you can have uh, conspirators who never actually meet. You can have uh, 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 long distance coordination. You can spread information so much more easily. Uh, it is just a, a whole new world for people who want to engage uh, in, in revolutionary violence. Uh, but it's also a whole new world for the rest of us too. And so we're um, uh, you know, organizing ourselves uh, to counter violence. Uh, when you have uh, communities that want to get together and communicate with each other and express their solidarity, they can do that uh, also uh, through social media. Uh, when you want to have a, a, a peace vigil somewhere, uh, you, you use the same tools that the, uh, the that the extremists use, uh, it, it's in a way it's ideologically neutral. These tools, right? Everybody can use them. Uh, what's interesting, though, is is that the, some studies have found that when you organize uh, in this virtual way, you can get a much quicker and much broader reach. You can get a lot of people together very quickly, but it doesn't last as long. That it turns out that the face-to-face, -face, ongoing, repeated interactions is what builds the trust, what builds the commitments that for movements uh, uh, that last, that, that endure beyond a, a large protest, beyond a single event, beyond a, you know, a one-day short-term. And so in some ways, we're not, I think, perhaps built as humans to have our main contact be virtual, that there's still some value added that I think many people are coming to realize in turning the machines off and engaging with people you care about or want to care about or want to learn to care about. Uh, and that I think there's something hopeful about that, that the, uh, you know, the, the, that, that getting together still matters uh, and that that's what builds these emotional bonds and that's what builds these social bonds. Uh, and uh, for the violent extremists, if we disrupt their virtual connections uh, and they have fewer and fewer chances to get together in person uh, as their territory gets shrunken, 
then uh, hopefully that means they'll have less of a reach uh, and that they, they, they won't endure either with these online movements uh, and that uh, those of us with better intentions uh, will prevail. For folks listening and for people at home who may, may not study this topic or have, have a, you know, a professional interest, but on a personal level, what can we do in our everyday lives to try and create a more, you know, less hostile world where these things don't happen? I know you're studying them and it's important that you study them, but hopefully one day you won't, there won't, it will be a past study. It won't be a present. No, I'm happy to be put out of business, <laughs> uh, at least to put this line of work out of business. I'd go back to doing the other kinds of research that I love doing. I would say there's two things, and uh, I'm not somebody who's going to, you know, has any right to give advice, but uh, th that would say two things. One is internal, is to fight hatred within ourselves, because I think we do have this othering impulse. Everybody has it. And, uh, even those of us who uh, you know, claim that it's based on really real things, like I only hate the haters, uh, we still have that hater, hatred inside us. The other thing I would say is to put yourself in situations where you can get to know folks. And I think that sort of intentional act of uh, reaching out uh, in our busy lives, of course it's hard uh, and uh, don't always know where to go. Uh, but there are organizations that work at this, that try to create these spaces. Yeah, you don't have to just go find people randomly on your own. Uh, every town has them. And I think these peacemaker organizations uh, can always use more hands uh, and even just uh, more curious onlookers. Uh, if you're not ready to get committed but want to go find out, uh, I'm sure there'll be somebody there who can lead you by the hand and, and and, and help you broaden your, your, your landscapes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at ACMCU, Georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes. <laughs>